3: Hello and welcome to New Books and Sports. I'm your host, Bruce Berglund. For each episode of the podcast, we choose an interesting new sports book and we interview the author of that book. But for this final episode of 2012, we have several guests from around the world. We'll hear about the issues they've been following during the last year in various areas of sport and we'll get their recommendations of the best recent books in sports, as well as some classics that they'll pick off their shelves. So if you're looking for gift ideas for the sports fan on your shopping list, or for your own wish list, or if you just like a new book to read over your holiday break, we have plenty of suggestions for you. Academic studies, journalistic works, novels, and the memoirs of athletes and fans. At the least, I hope you enjoyed this overview of the year in sports. We don't have highlights or predictions or top 10 lists. Instead, you'll hear intelligent commentary on the events of the year and insights into some of the deeper issues of sport, society, and culture. I learned something new from these conversations, and I think you will too. We'll start our year-end tour of the sports world in India and of course when we talk of sports in India we have to discuss cricket. To give us a view of the year in Indian cricket I spoke with Siddhartha Vaidnathan. Sid has written for ESPN Crick Info, The Daily Telegraph, the BBC World Service and other outlets. But his sports interests range far beyond cricket. Under the pen name Sid V. He blogs about a number of sports, and he also writes about American sport for news sites in India. You'll get a taste of his far-reaching interests in the course of our interview. But to start our conversation, I asked him about one of the pressing questions in Indian cricket this year. Is it time for the great Sachin Tendulkar to retire? <laughs> and the timing couldn't have been...
4: Um, even more <laughs> I mean, I, I think it couldn't have been even more perfect because just like five minutes before we spoke he has got out again in a test match and raising more questions about whether he should retire or not. I think um, yeah, I mean, as I was just telling someone he's seems to be on really thin ice at the moment. So it it's probably um, closer than we thought it would be.
3: So this past year did bring the retirement of uh, Raul Dravid. And, and so much has been written about the fact that Dravid had, had perhaps the misfortune to play at the same time as one of the greatest players in the history of the sport. But, but looking ahead, say, a decade or two from now, how will, as, as people look back at, at this time in, in Indian cricket, how will Dravid and Tendulkar be, be viewed, uh, say, individually and, and relative to each other?
4: Well, I think the fact that they played so much of cricket together makes the comparisons inevitable, um, especially at the time in which they were playing. But I think if one were to fast forward 20, 10, 20 years down the line, I think the those comparisons are gradually going to um, take a backseat. And um, we will probably get a more nuanced... Um, understanding of their careers over a period of, a period of time. I think Tendulkar will um, encompass much more than not only Dravid than probably any other cricketer that India has had, simply because his effect goes well beyond the cricket field. It's almost like he's almost a sociological phenomenon. I mean, he could have been a novelist or he could have been a an, a singer and he would have, you know, he would have probably... Had a similar and had a similar effect, and he would have been studied in the same way. So Tendulkar, I think, sort of transcended the sport more than any other cricketer did. Dravid's um, contribution will be um, more understood as the years go along, and I think um, 10 years down the line, 15 years down the line, as more and more books get written about them, as more and more historians analyze their games and their um, styles, I think um, Dravid will eventually get his due. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if purely as a batsman, 15, 20 years down the line, he is held yeah. um, on par, if not by many people, as a greater batsman than Tendulkar, though Tendulkar, of course, will always have that, uh, <laughs> that halo of being the phenomenon uh, of India that um, he has been.
3: So, Sid, you write about Indian cricket on your blog, you write about uh, uh, international tennis, uh, but you've also been writing about American sport for uh, Indian media outlets. And I want to ask you, what, what is it that uh, attracts you in, in writing about American sport?
4: Well, I think more than anything, I think the history, the fact that um, there is not only such a storied history of so many of these American sport, but also the care and the um, um, sort of uh, immaculate way in which a lot of that history has been preserved over time, either in the form of uh, video footage, documentaries, movies, novels, books, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think um, I've really, really enjoyed um, reading as well as watching um, things about and watching uh, the history of american sport rather than the live sport itself sometimes um i've been watching basketball the nba ever since um, 1994 that's when it was telecast in india first and um, that was a, something i got hooked on to then but baseball f- football the american variety and uh, hockey ice hockey uh sports that were totally new to me and but it really begun to enjoy learning them uh, reading about them and also understanding how important it is to document as well as preserve a lot of your sporting history
3: which we in india tend to ignore you are though back in in india back home in india right now as we're talking and uh, i know that you just posted a a a blog post about visiting a cricket match there. And so I'll ask you, what is it that you, you most look forward to when you go back home about the... Uh, what are you eager for when you go to a cricket match in India?
4: Well, there, there are actually two kinds of cricket matches in India. Maybe three, actually, if you look at it. The, the domestic cricket matches, or as um, uh, one would say, matches between two states or between two counties at the first class level, are usually watched by an average of 10 people. (laughs) Well, that's probably an exaggeration, let's say 50 at the most. But in some grounds, you'll probably get five. And so it's a really, um, it's a strange experience being there. It's almost as if you're watching, you're at a theater all alone. Or you, know, and then you have these twenty-two guys. Then you'll have their teammates from the uh, in the dugout who're probably cheering them. And then you'll have silence. You'll have birds. You'll have dogs. You'll just have a pretty eerie setting, but it's very interesting setting because it almost takes you back to a sort of a different age in which cricket was played. You hear the sounds of cricket. You hear the bat on the ball. You hear fielders talking. You hear umpires calling. So. That's one kind of cricket. The other kind of cricket is, of course, the packed stands of the IPL, the the noisy, raucous, um, partisan kind of atmosphere, which is also pretty um, characteristic of India because I don't think too many other countries do uh, such loud uh, grounds like India does. I mean, I, I, I've seen games in the U.S., and I don't think I've seen the kind of uh, hysteria that... Uh, accompanies a cricket match in india maybe michigan ohio state football may come close but i'm not sure <laughs> all
3: right i'll ask if you've read any good books this year
4: um i wish i had read more but i definitely did read a few and um one book a couple of books uh that both books are american books, and i've been reading, reading quite a few books by american authors and on american american sport one book is on um Joe Pateno, the uh, football coach from Penn State who was involved in the scandal over um, uh, Jerry Sandusky and uh, the rest. This is uh, a biography uh, by Joe Poznaski, the uh, famous sports writer. One of the reasons I wanted to read this book was um, because it must have been so challenging for the writer. Uh, because he took on this project in 2010 or 2011, I think, before the scandal broke out. And here you have this guy who um, has complete access to his subject, a subject who is one of the most revered coaches in American football history, and then he starts interviewing him and speaking to him and doing his research. And as he goes along, is then caught up, uh, finds his subject caught up in a scandal so big that it tarnishes his reputation completely and so Paznasky is left with writing this book of a life that's just changed in probably 6 to 7 months completely changed i mean in the he a, a, a almost godlike figure has gone on to be a, sort of a, a pariah and uh, to such an extent that his statue in state college is is doesn't even exist anymore and that's what interested me in this whole, how, did, how, did a, how does a writer approach such a challenging task and what does he do to it? Of course, I was partly disappointed with the book, but I think that was not the point. The point was to see how he approached it. I, did, I think he did a pretty good job in trying to take on the balancing act because it's a tremendous balancing act. The other book I read was actually a novel. Um, another kind of uh, genre which Americans do really well, the sports novel and um, I think um, that that was called "The Art of Fielding" by Shad Habak, which uh, won a lot of um, which got a lot of rave reviews and I think was on the new york Times bestseller 's list for a while that 's another book that I really enjoyed and I would um, recommend people read
3: and i 'll ask you if you have any uh, uh older or classic sports books that you 'd recommend sure i
4: mean I could go on and on about the American novelists who have produced so many great books. I mean, uh, while well, we spoke about The Art of Feeling, uh, the immediate classic that comes to mind is The Natural by Bernard Malamud, the, the famous novelist and author. And I would tell any sports fan to read that book. And even if you don't know anything about baseball, I, I didn't know anything about baseball when I read it, and um, I think it's a fantastic exploration of uh, the human side of an athlete, and how uh, a, an uh, how an icon reacts to pressure, adulation. And various other things. I won't give the ending away, but I think it's fantastic. Don't. Uh, there is a movie. It's a very famous movie by uh, where which Robert Redford stars in. Don't watch the movie first. Read the book, and then you can watch the movie and make up your mind. So that's one recommendation. The other recommendation is from the world of cricket, and um, even though cricket hasn't produced um, too many. Um, novels. I've, it has definitely produced some of the some great, great writing down the years, reportage, tour diaries, biography, um, reflections, etc. Um, the one classic that I would recommend is um, by the cricket writer Gideon Hay. He's uh, the Australian cricket writer, pro- probably the best cricket writer around at the moment, at least in my view. And he wrote this book. Back in the mid '90s, about called Mystery Spinner. Now, Mystery Spinner is about a cricketer who played in the 1950s, who played for a very, very short period of time, had a really good um, few series, won an Ashes, played—I uh, mean—played I mean, played a huge part in winning an Ashes, and then just disappeared into obscurity, and nobody knew what happened to him and he and he's a classic case of an athlete who comes on the scene, shines for a brief while, and then disappears. But Gideon Hay took on this really challenging task of tracking him down and of course he was dead by then, but to track an, an a sort of an obscure athlete down and to um scavenge all the bits about him and to almost do like an investigative story on this cricketer who's long gone, and who probably nobody cares about
3: anymore. Sid vyad book recommendations are Paterno by Joe Posnansky, published by Simon & Schuster in 2012. Chad Harbach's novel, The Art of Fielding, published this year by Back Bay Books. Bernard Molymeud's classic novel The Natural was first published in 1952 It is available in a 2003 reprint edition from Farrar strauss Giroux, And Gideon Hag's book, Mystery Spinner, was published in 2002 by RM Press. And please also visit Sid's blog. He writes about cricket, tennis, cycling, and all manner of sports at sidvblogs.wordpress.com. And that's V with two E's. As Sid observed, Americans are particularly inclined to document and preserve the history of their sporting culture. And this is especially the case with baseball. In recent years, the baseball library has gained a wealth of impressive biographies and histories of the game. And one writer who has contributed to this growth in the literature is Jonathan Icke. Jonathan's books on two of baseball's immortals Lou Gehrig, and Jackie Robinson, have earned praise and awards. He has also been a contributor to The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and The New Republic. But this year, Jonathan launched a new venture in sports writing, one that has attracted the interest of people who wonder what direction will journalism take in the age of online media. We began the interview by talking about this project. I asked Jonathan what led him to launch the new online sports page, Chicago Side.
0: Well, Chicago Side was born earlier this year. We launched in April, and, and the reason we started it was we felt like sports writing was taking a little hit, uh, especially at the local level, as a result of the um, diminishment in newspapers. You know, the newspapers don't have the staff they used to have. People aren't reading the newspapers as much as they used to, and the feature stories, the, the great writing, was really getting lost in the shuffle. You can still find some great writing at the at the big sites like ESPN, you know where Rick Riley and, and Bill Simmons are are turning out great stuff, and you'll even find really terrific long form feature writing at places like Yahoo Sports. But on a local level, which is how we follow sports after all, and we follow it, you know, we follow our home teams, the local stuff was really suffering, and we felt like it was time for a really um, smart, savvy, fun sports website to come in and and do some um, do some fun sh- stuff for Chicago and really focus on on our teams.
3: So as you said, one of the emphases of the site has been has been strong writing, and in the last year or so, there have been uh, a number of sports sites that have started up here in the States that promote themselves as offering high-quality writing, and I'm, I'm thinking of Grantland, uh, the classical, uh, the newly launched site, Sports on Earth. So, so in your view, why is there uh, this demand now for a more intelligent, even more literary brand of sports writing?
0: Well, sports writing has always lent itself to great writing. And if you look back into the, you know, the 30s, you know, you saw great writers, um, you know, dabbling in sports. It's always been a playground for terrific writers. And then, you know, when, when Sports Illustrated was at its peak, you had guys like Frank DeFord. Frank DeFord's still doing, turning out great stuff. But more and more of the, of the write, good writing is turning to the web, and that's just because that's where the readers are. So it makes perfect sense. And I think it just took a little bit of time for the web to develop enough, of, enough of attention that people are willing to read the longer form stuff. And and it was only logical that sports would be an area of growth for for good writing.
3: So you've written for publications in the past based in the Northeast that are aimed at national audiences. So the Wall Street Journal, you wrote for for that for a number of years, the New York Times, the New Republic. Now, what, what new challenges have you discovered in writing for and editing a site aimed at a specifically local Midwestern audience?
0: Well, we're writing for Chicago, which is just one of the great sports towns, and there's such passion here. So um, before I talk about the challenges, I I should say that I think the great advantage we have, and maybe it's an advantage over sites like um, Sports on Earth or the Classical or or Grandland, is that we have a a really focused, targeted readership. Uh, It's smaller, of course, but it's also... um, really knowledgeable. They, they they care deeply about about their teams. I mean, people will read eight stories about the Chicago Bears on the day after a big game. Um, and the the appetite is endless. So I think that's a, that's a huge advantage to us. The, you know, the challenge, obviously, is that you've got to really know your stuff, and you've got to be smarter than, than anybody else out there, or at least give it your best shot. And that's what we're doing. We're giving it our best shot, and we're producing stuff that you can't find anywhere else. You can't find this kind of local coverage with this kind of smart writing uh, on Grantland, if you're a Furo Bears, and a Cubs and a White Sox fan. Mm-hmm. This is the place to go.
3: So, Jonathan, you've written two acclaimed baseball books, uh, your biography of Lou Gehrig titled Luckiest Man, and your book on Jackie Robinson's first season with the Brooklyn Dodgers, titled Opening Day. And I, I want to ask you about the subject of that second book, Jackie Robinson. So, so this coming, upcoming year, uh, there will be a new feature film about the life of Jackie Robinson. So as someone who has come to know Robinson's life in detail, are, are you eager to see this film, or are you wary of what Hollywood might do to this story?
0: Oh, I'm eager to see it. I assume Hollywood will 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 screw it up a little bit, or or certainly uh, pull it in some strange directions. That's you know Hollywood is uh, is allowed to do that. As far as I'm concerned, there's plenty of room for poetic license, and uh, you know I think that the Jackie Robinson story has become you know, one of our our national touchstones. You know, he's he's like one of the presidents in terms of how. Um, deeply, his, his story resonates uh, with people, and and I think that it, it's uh, it's certainly open to interpretation, just like Lincoln's story can be told over and over again, and and sometimes um, more accurately than others, sometimes more artfully than others, and you know some of the fun is in is in playing that out and watching the analysis, in doing the analysis and seeing you know how people interpret the story, and you know I I did my best to represent it accurately and honestly, and and also tell it dramatically in my book on Robinson. And, and i think it'll be great to see how the movie makers um approach the same issues
3: and so han solo as branch ricky are you good <laughs> casting bad casting
0: i think that's terrific casting i was surprised though especially when i saw the the clips to see how much he uh he took on the persona i thought he really uh they, you know it's all in the eyebrows if you want to do branch ricky you got you to <laughs> do the eyebrows right and i think they got they nailed it on that
3: all right have you read any good books this year johnson
0: um, yeah, there were some terrific baseball books this year, uh, sports books all around, actually, but um, you know, I tend to read a bit more baseball when it comes to books. I think baseball is, is, the, is the best sport for for books, and um, there weren't the big blockbusters. You know, we didn't have a Jane Le- Levy, um, Mickey Mantle book or a uh, giant Joe DiMaggio biography, but we did have some, have some really good ones. I enjoyed Paul Dixon's biography of Bill Veck. I mean, Vec was in management, so there's not a lot of action in terms of you know action on the ball field. And 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 that may be why the book wasn't as big as as the Maggio book. But but man, is there anybody out there who made as big a difference in the game as Bill Vec? I mean, I came away feeling like like Vec, as much as we as we as we love to talk about him, was really uh, in some ways un- underappreciated in terms of his impact on the game. Uh, that was a terrific book by Paul Dixon. I mentioned Frank DeFord earlier. He had a great collection of his work, uh, or reflection, I guess, called Overtime, uh, looking back on his career and how sports have changed. I thought that was a terrific one. I'm still a Yankee fan, so I liked Marty Appel's book, uh, on The History of the Yankees, Pinstripe Empire. Oh, and Jim Abbott's biography, the uh, you know the, the pitcher who threw the no-hitter, the one-handed pitcher who mm-hmm. threw the no-hitter for the Yankees, um, called Imperfect. That was one of my favorite books
3: of the year, too. And are you working on a, a new sports book?
0: I'm working on a, a new book, but it's not a sports book, um... It's going to sound like a leap, but it's about the invention of the birth control pill. Um, I've also got a novel that I've just finished that has a lot of baseball in it, so maybe that'll buy me some time with the, the baseball fans while I figure out another baseball story to tell.
3: Jonathan Igg's picks for this year's best sports books are Frank DeFord's memoir, Overtime, My Life as a Sports Writer, published by Atlantic Monthly Press, the book Imperfect, An Improbable Life is the memoir of Jim Abbott who was born without a right hand and yet went on to pitch for 10 seasons in Major League Baseball in the 1990s. His book was published this year by Ballantine Books. Marty Appel's History of the Yankees is titled Pinstripe Empire The New York Yankees From Before the Babe to After the Boss published by Bloomsbury. And Paul Dixon's biography of legendary team owner Bill Veck is titled Bill Veck, Baseball's Great Maverick. It's available from Walker and Company. And you can also hear Paul Dixon talk about his book in an episode of New Books and Sports from this past April. And of course, you don't have to be a fan of the Bears, the Cubs, or the White Sox to enjoy Chicago side. You'll find the writing of Jonathan and his colleagues at chicagosidesports.com. We turn from baseball writing in Chicago to baseball writing in Tokyo. Jason Koskry is a native Detroiter who got his start in sports journalism with different newspapers in the US. But since 2007, he's been in Tokyo covering baseball, soccer, and other sports for the English language newspaper the Japan Times. I started my conversation with Jason by asking him, after five years in Japan, what is his favorite sports event to cover there?
1: Probably the Japan series, mostly because obviously I'm a base, mostly a baseball writer, but the Japan series is, I mean, it's it's the zenith, it's the top. You have all the teams battling, battling it out and You've got two left standing, so everything really comes to a head at the Japan Series. So it's more, a lot more drama. Every pitch matters, I guess, more. So I think the Japan Series would be my favorite event to cover.
3: So, in my understanding of, of Japanese baseball, though, I've I've always been under the impression that it's the high school tournament uh, in the in the spring and early summer. That's really the kind of the experience for Japanese baseball fans.
1: The high school tournament is it's extremely huge but it it really it's only twice a year obviously there's the um the spring one which is actually the newer one and by new I mean a few decades mm-hmm. but the summer summer cochian is it's the star making machine if you're a star there you're going to be you're set for life basically if you played in cochian you know if you can tell you know when you go for a job and if you played in cochian that gives you a head up heads up cuz it is it's really hard to describe what I can, I can a comparison in North America because Koshian is so unique in that it's high school kids put on the national stage for everybody to see. If you walk around, like for instance, you know, at my bank, they have televisions there and it's always on Koscian when Koscian's going on. So it is the big thing. But I think pro baseball is caught up a little bit.
3: So each year, baseball players move from the States to Japan to play professional ball. Uh, you have players moving pretty regularly now from Japan to the States. This always draws a lot of interest, a lot of curiosity among fans in on both sides of the Pacific. So have you ever done interviews with, with American players who are new to Japanese ball, and uh, and either they ask you for advice or you volunteer advice on, on what they should watch out for?
1: Yeah, that, that happens quite regularly. So, and I, I, usually from my end, I just tell them to be be open-minded. Not everything is going to be the way it was at home. Whenever someone is asking me, I always, I refer them to what Alex Ramirez told me. And Tuffy Rhodes also told me two guys who were here so long that they don't even count as foreign players anymore. They technically count as Japanese players per the rule if they were here so long. And Tuffy would always tell me he could tell within meeting a guy, within the first five, ten minutes, whether or not this guy was going to last in Japan just because of the attitude. And I, I always just tell people what Tuffy and Alex told me. Forget, every, forget most of everything of what, what you learned at home because that stuff's going to help you, but that stuff can also hold you back. You've got to be open-minded to play here because culturally there are a
3: lot of differences. So I'll ask you, Jason, if you've read any good books this year.
1: Um this in the past year, obviously I've been pretty busy. The book I read that I really enjoyed was those guys have all the fun the um the oral anthology of the s p n and that that was something I really enjoyed reading. I think for that I don't re- usually read those kind of books, oral histories, that kind of thing, so I think it was really it's kind of a change of pace i really i really enjoy in instead of it being the writer. Doing the research and presenting the research and lacing that a lot of times with quotes from people. Basically, I, I I would call it the normal way of doing things. It's actually it's kind of straight to the source. There's not there's not a lot of window dressing on it. It's it's Dan Patrick telling you this. It's Chris Berman telling you this. It's Vince Doria telling you this. And I really I really enjoyed the fact that it you, you had the people telling you their experiences almost. As, almost as one-on-one as you could get.
3: So after reading it as, as a sports journalist and someone who has done sports journalism in the States, did you think, boy, I really wish I could have worked at ESPN or boy, I'm really glad I didn't work at ESPN.
1: <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll, I'll probably say it's a little bit of both because ESPN obviously is just a gigantic entity and, in- uh, I think, in some ways, and from reading that book, I think in some ways you can see the access and the 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 freedom you get working for a brand, having that kind of a brand behind you, but I also can see that, and in some ways, that can restrict what you can do. And I think that's something that all media people, you know, should read—not just sports media, but media in general should read how number one how ESPN came to be how the culture came to be, how it changed, because it's there's a lot of lessons in there for people who
3: are in media, I think. And so then you're a baseball writer. Do you have a, a classic baseball book or a book on on sports in Japan that uh, that you'd recommend, an older book?
1: Well, probably one of my favorite books, sports books ever. It would have to be You Gotta Have Wah from Robert Whiting. And I would suggest anyone... Who's even interested in Japan, not just Japanese baseball to read. You got to have law because, you know, Robert, he, he frames it around baseball. But there's a lot of lessons in there about how Japanese society deals with foreign foreigners and how foreigners deal with Japanese society. I think at one time it was when people were working for the State Department that had to deal with Japan. The government was it was required reading for them. So it's really, to me, a seminal piece on U.S.-Japanese relations. Obviously, a lot of things have changed since then, but it's amazing how much is still the same culturally, and how culturally relevant it still is, not just baseball-wise, but culturally-wise, between the relations between Japan and America.
3: So do you find yourself going back to to Whiting's book, and and now that you've been in Japan for a number of years, and saying, Aha, I, I see that. Absolutely, absolutely. Because I've, I've
1: reread it a few times. And yeah, there are many instances where I see, oh, yeah, I, I've seen that happen. I've heard of that happening. Yeah, so there are many moments in there.
3: The new book in sports that Jason Koskri recommends is Those Guys Have All the Fun Inside the World of ESPN by James Andrew Miller and Tom Shales, published in 2011 by Back Bay Books. And the classic title on baseball in Japan is Robert Whiting's book, You Gotta Have Wah, first published in 1989 and re-released by Vintage in 2009. From Japan, let's move south in the Pacific to Australia. My next guest, Barry Nichols, is the host of the program 110% on the sporting arm of Australia's public radio service, ABC Grandstand. The program has a familiar format. For each episode, Barry interviews journalists and academics about new and old sports books and some of the deeper issues in sport. And Barry himself is also an author, having published two books on cricket one, a memoir of his early years as a fan, titled Cricket Dreaming, and more recently, a biography of the former Australia captain, Barry Jarman. Before talking cricket, though, I wanted to ask Barry about other noteworthy events from the past year in Australian sport. So one of the big sports stories in Australia in the the first half of the year was the racehorse Black Caviar. And oh, that's been huge. Yeah, yeah. So I was going to ask about that. I'll, I'll just say, so Black Caviar set a record with 20 straight wins and then went to England in June and won the Diamond Jubilee Stakes at the Royal Ascot. So how did this play out in Australia? Well, it
5: was extraordinary, really. Um, it, was, it was probably,
3: it was tw-
5: it's, it's now been successful for 22 races, so it hasn't been beaten. It's a sprinter, and it's a, a horse that has, you know it seems cliche but it's captured the imagination of the australian public you've got people going to to horse racing that would, wouldn't have gone in the past and i know we've got um young children they were fascinated with the development of of and the progress of black caviar and it we you know it got to the point where every time it raced the radio would go on and You know, there were special broadcasts on the ABC that would interrupt AFL games. Now, in in the past, that would never happen. But um, it it was just amazing. They they kept comparing it to Farlap, of course, the horse from the 1930s that uh, supposedly helped Australia cope with the Depression. But, you know, it's been something I haven't seen in my lifetime.
3: So Barry, I know that your your main sport is cricket, and uh, there was big news uh, last week in Australian cricket with the retirement of Ricky Ponting. So for those of us outsiders, can you give us a sketch of of Ponting's legacy for Australian cricket?
5: Sure. Well, I mean, Ponting's been the the, the number one batsman in the world. He was for a period of time. He batted in a, a difficult position in the Australian lineup for a fair bit of his career. That's number three. So once a wicket has fallen, he's the the next guy that goes in, which is often a, a highly pressurised situation. He was um, someone that... He made his debut in 1995, I think it was. He's been playing for an incredible period of time. He, he captained the team to an enormous number of test matches as well. And his loss will be felt enormously uh, just through his sheer brilliance as a batsman, but he was also a wonderful fieldsman as well. And he had this capacity where he was successful across the three different forms of the game. So he was a guy that was uh, a successful five-day so a test cricketer. Uh, he also played one-day cricket incredibly well, helping Australia to a World Cup at one stage with some very impressive batting. And he was also a dynamite when he played twenty twenty, 20 even though that started to be introduced more at the tail end of his career. It was a sort of player that was adaptable enough that he could play all, all the different forms of the game so um, his loss will you know is incredibly significant not only for his performances but he was very much a, a player who was well respected and very much liked by fellow teammates so no it's been a it's been a significant week
3: So, Barry, I know that you read a lot about sports here in the U.S. Uh, You featured American authors on your program 110% on ABC Grandstand. And in the past year, this podcast, my podcast, has featured Australian writers Gideon Haig and Greg Damore. But something that struck me about reading about Australian sport is that Americans and Australians have quite distinct sports dialects. So I don't know if you have any American sports idioms that cause you to scratch your head, but uh, I have a few examples from Australian sports English. So I'd like to pass those by. And the first of these is footy. What is what is footy? <laughs>
5: <laughs> that's, uh, that's Australian rules football. So because, you see, we have different football codes here, as you do, but we have rugby league, rugby union. We have uh, what we call soccer, uh, which is a round ball sport. Uh, and then we have Australian rules football. And so we tend to call rugby union rugby. We call league rugby league league. We call what the rest of the world calls football. We call that soccer. And we call Aussie rules football footy.
3: Okay. Well, we're together on soccer. Sense? Yeah, that, that that makes sense. If you use the term there was no way an American would would refer to our brand of football gridiron as 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 footy. Footies are, are footies are little short stockings usually worn by, by young girls. <laughs> well, you better keep that quiet. I'm yeah, afraid. yeah, yeah. Now, and uh and I'll ask too, what is a what is a punter? a punter as I mean, in uh, one of the one of the books you oh, featured sorry, this year was, was right. diary of a mad punter correct
5: yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, that's um, a punter is someone normally bets on something but it, 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 it's it's someone who's interest who's got a, a fascination with a particular sport you know like a punter um, is it, yeah someone who follows something passionately that that's my understanding of it anyway but, yeah, but it does come from that idea of gambling that you're willing to have a bet. is that the American understanding of punter?
3: No, a punter here is as uh, a position in American football. Uh, the punter uh, is yeah. after af- when the when the offense has to give up the ball, the punter kicks the ball or punts it to to the other team and in fact, right now uh, playing in american American university football college football. Uh, for one of the top teams, there's an Australian punter, a kicker from Melbourne, a, a, a player named Brad Wing, who is just phenomenal, phenomenal. And he was trained playing footy in Australia, and he can he can hit long punts and put them anywhere on the field he wants them. So uh, so he's become something of a uh, of a star of American American football over here.
5: Yeah, no, punter definitely someone who gambles on, normally the nags, normally the horses. That's why Ricky Ponting was called punter ponting, because he, he liked to go out to the track.
3: Now, and if I were ever to come visit you in Australia and you were to take me to the, to the pub to meet your, to meet your friends, uh, I wouldn't want to say to, to your friends, uh, no. or I wouldn't want to ask them what team they rooted for, correct?
5: No, no, no. Well, that's got sexual connotations here uh rather you know it's a rather coarse way of saying you had sexual intercourse with someone so, rooting.
3: so what would i s- what would i want to say instead
5: you would barrack barrack you okay. would support yeah barrack is is the term so you yeah i i barrack for the pros or you know who do you barrack for all right. so who do you support
3: all right do you have any do you have any american American sports idioms that uh cause you confusion. Well it's
5: interesting you know that I, I had a look at some American sporting expressions and I have to say that most of them we actually use, I'll just go down the list, touch base we use that in the same with the same understanding of getting, you know, to briefly get in contact with someone. Rain check to postpone something out of left field, something surprising we all use that. I mean there was there was one here uh, that struck me as little as being a little bit odd and that was shag it. Um, so that again if you're coming from our British background that's got sexual connotations but it's got a different meaning I believe in, the, in
3: your country. To shag yeah Shag so all the terms you mentioned are baseball terms and to to shag is, is a baseball term that uh, uh, when you're practicing in the, in the field, Uh, particularly with outfielders, uh, before a game. You would would shag fly balls, so it just means that uh, you're running and catching fly balls hit to you.
5: But it's incredible, you know, just how many words are uh, used that that come from the United States, or how many phrases. And I was thinking about this today. I was thinking, when did this start to happen? And I think that in the early 1970s, I can remember, um, with my friends. We used to commentate table tennis games. And I, I don't know whether it was the influence of the 72 Olympics when we, st- we saw the Olympics on telly and there were some American commentators there, or whether it was the Ali-Fraser fight that was so huge here that we started picking up um, sayings that you would use in uh, in the U.S., but it's become more, more so now. It's almost like they're interchangeable.
3: So Barry, have you read any good books this year? Well, look, I've.
5: Um, what I'd like to do. Yes, I have. Is the simple answer to that. But what I'd like you to I'd like to do. I've got a couple of books that I'd like to draw your attention, you and your your fellow potty's attention to. And one bloke who writes about Australian rules football in Australia, but also writes on other matters as well is a guy called Martin Flanagan. Uh, among the books that he's written, he, he wrote one called 1970 the other, and Other Stories of the Australian game. And what he wrote about was a grand final in Australian football um, that happened in 1970 that was an extraordinary event in many ways. One of the reasons it was amazing was the the match itself because it it was a game uh, whereby a working class uh, or a club with a a then very much a working class background, Collingwood, took on a a middle class club, Carlton. And the game itself was extraordinary because at half-time, Collingwood was... Having not won a grand final since 1958... Collingwood was seven goals up at half time, And somehow, Carlton managed to claw its way back and, and win this game. Now, it was in front of a crowd of 121,000, the MCG, which made it even more significant. And it just had so many incredible moments. And if I can just read just the, the opening of this book, just to give you a bit of a, an idea about the way that Flanagan writes. He says, Sport is drama. Occasionally, it tilts over and becomes something more. What happens is that the memory of an event acquires a life of its own and goes careering down the years, unstoppable, ruthlessly refining itself in the public memory. Peter McKenna meets it twice a week, Sid Jackson four times, perhaps because he's black. The question usually goes, are you Sid Jackson? Did you play in the 1970 grand final? And after a few beers and in a playful mood, Sid's been known to answer, no, I'm Lionel Rose but mostly Sid admits to his identity. Lionel Rose is one of the... These are my own words now. He was a famous boxer for Australia. So that's the, the sort of flavour of the book. Um, it's a terrific look at my uh, moment, this um, game in Australian rules footy.
3: And you have another one from this year, though?
5: In your I do. Well, I, I, I'd be lying if I said it was from this year, Bruce, but I hadn't read it this year. Is that acceptable?
3: That is acceptable.
5: <laughs> Good. <laughs> the next one... I want to talk about this guy that you've interviewed called Gideon Haig. And the reason I'm talking about the cricket war, the inside story of Kerry Packer's World Series cricket, is because this year on Channel 9, um, one of the major commercial television networks here, there has been a huge success on telly, and that has been a program or a two-part series uh, called How's That, which has depicted this event in Australian cricket history. This story looks at the way that Australian businessman Kerry Packer essentially bought out the cream of the crop of the best cricketers in the world and formed his own cricket competition, which was called World Series Cricket. And Haig has written about that era. He actually, this book originally came out in 1993. This is the first time I actually read Haig as a writer, and I think it's only his second book. And it's a wonderful uh, look at what happens behind the scenes, um, and, and the detail that Hague goes uh, that goes into his research is is extraordinary. And Hague's got a, a business background as well in journalism, and I think that that very much comes to the fore. That's called the Cricket Wall, by the way.
3: Well, Barry, thanks for coming on the podcast and giving your recommendations
5: my pleasure, Bruce. I must say before I leave you that uh, one of the the great joys of this year for me has been uh, establishing a a bit of a connection with you and your show. So thank you very much.
3: Barry Nichols' picks for books on Australian sport are Martin Flanagan, 1970, and Other Stories of the Australian Game. Published in 1999 by Allen and Unwin. Gideon Hagg's book is titled The Cricket War the inside story of Kerry Packer's World Series Cricket published by Melbourne University Press in 2007 It might have escaped the attention of sports fans in Australia and Japan and many parts of the United States for that matter but the National Hockey League has yet to play a game this season For fans in Canada however, the NHL player lockout has been the big story of this year in sports. To get a perspective on the lockout and the future of the game after the labor discord is resolved, I spoke with Mark Norman, a research associate at the University of Toronto's Center for Sport Policy Studies. Mark is also the founder and editor of the blog, Hockey in Society, which offers a site for sociologists and researchers in cultural studies to apply their insights to hockey and other sports. Impressively, for a site that takes an academic approach to sport, the blog has gained the respectful attention of fans and mainstream hockey writers in its first year. But along with being a student of hockey's place in Canadian society, Mark is also a lifelong fan of the Vancouver Canucks. And like other fans, he's upset by the prospect that the NHL will lose a second season within a decade to disagreement between owners and players.
6: I, I completely agree that the NHL, and to a lesser extent the players, have taken the fans for granted in this process. And I think because it is the second time that there's been the at least the threat of, of a canceled season within the last decade, and because... The last lockout, which canceled the season, was supposedly going to solve all these problems and therefore allow the NHL to continue. I think because of that, there are a lot of fans who really are fed up. They're 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 just very frustrated that this has happened again. I think that diehards and I would put myself in that group will come back. I just I can't realistically see the the NHL starting up and me not me being able to ignore Canucks games. Um, that being said, I think you know I don't know that I would drop. My Saturday night hockey league, so I might not be watching as many Saturday night hockey night in Canada games, which is a time when I can usually watch the Canucks. So I think maybe maybe fans will have found other other ways of occupying their time. So even though they'll still still watch, they may not do so as adamantly as before. But I, I think there will be a diehard that, that will remain fans. I think where the NHL will get hurt is that they've been trying really hard to cultivate a more casual fan base. Um, I don't think there's ever been a problem for fans with, with diehard fans and hockey. Um, there's really loyal followings for a lot of teams, but it's getting that, especially in the United States, getting that broader base of of fans. They, you know, so they've they've been on TV more with it, deals with NBC and uh, versus, and getting attendance up at games and the Winter Classic, which has sort of become their marquee event, the big outdoor game they do every every year on New Year's Day. So I think a lot of that momentum probably has, will will be killed the sort of the casual fan that they've been courting over the past few years. May have you know drifted off to other sports or other other interests that they want to follow. Um, so I think it'll take a lot of time to kind of rebuild rebuild that fan base. I'm I'm not sure if some some of the sort of the markets that draw on the lower end of attendance can can survive another canceled season, especially. A team like Florida, who missed the playoffs for, for eight years straight and built a lot of finally made it this year and built a lot of, of positive momentum to, to kill a season, um, I feel kills all that momentum. And they're back to sort of having a very small, diehard fan base and then needing to draw in more casual fans from the Miami area. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I mean, it, it, it sort of looks like suicide for the league, but they've been through it before and, and come back stronger. So we'll have to see.
3: So thinking of this idea of of momentum, momentum gained and then lost during this this lost season, uh, one effect of the NHL, NHL lockout has been to move to the background the issue of violence and player health, which was a big concern in hockey last year. And it seemed to me in following your blog and the hockey press last year that this was something of a rising issue, maybe rising to a critical point. And I'm wondering, though, and I'll pose this to you, is the loss of a, of a season going to have the effect of of damping down uh, the concern about violence in hockey?
6: That's a very interesting question. It's not something I thought about, but you're definitely right that it's it's made labor issues the central focus of uh, mainstream hockey discussions. And I guess it could go two ways. I mean, I I I, I would say yes for for now that. It seems as though the talk of violence has really gone onto the back burner, especially after the the early rounds of the the twenty twelve playoffs when there was quite a few violent incidents and a lot of of talk about it and a lot of sort of i guess it was the culmination of, of really a year or two of of talk about it that being said i may if if and when the NHL returns. It may just take one or two incidents to to make it a, a front burner issue again. But at least for now, it certainly seems to have have quieted that down. An interesting, I guess, out- potential outcome from the lockout. I'm not sure it will happen. Is that the new collective bargaining agreement could include more requirements around workplace safety and put more responsibility on the league to protect uh, its employees, the players. Um, that being said, I think as much as I said i sympathize with with the players union um one area they've come under criticism for is not pushing player safety enough and not really advocating enough to to force the league to put in into place um more stringent safety requirements whether those be around stronger penalties for for hits to the head um, whether they be around uh, safer equipment whether they be around banning fighting um the the players union hasn't been as active as it probably could have been to protect the livelihood and the, the health of its of its members so it's possible um although i haven't heard much talk about it that the negotiations could actually include um discussions around that and they could be enshrined in the collective bargaining agreement but i would say that's that's unlikely and i'd say given that they're you know there's bigger financial issues that they're negotiating i'm not sure that will will happen so i guess we'll have to see if when when the NHL does return if if violence sort of becomes again a, a hot topic.
3: So, as a as a PhD candidate, you obviously read a lot of books. Yes have you read Have you read any really good books this year?
6: Uh, I've I've read a few. Yeah, I, I don't know that I'll be able to remember them all. But one that I'm I'm just working my way through right now, um, most of the way through. That's been fantastic, which is about hockey. Uh, Is called "Stick Handling Through the Margins" and it's by uh, Dr. Michael Robidoux, who's a professor at University of Ottawa. And it's about uh, a topic I'm quite interested into um, about hockey in Canadian First Nations communities. And he's produced a lot of uh, great research around the topic, looking at how uh, Aboriginal culture, um, and particularly physical culture around sports like la- la- lacrosse and uh, have contributed sort of to Canadian sporting culture and including hockey. So in this book he explores in in various First Nations communities sort of the meaning of uh, the cultural meaning of hockey based on extensive field work that he conducted in these communities and and sort of highlights kind of the diversity of experiences and the ways in which these communities have have sort of taken and appropriated hockey to the to their their own ends. Um, so that's <coughs> excuse me. That's one book that I'm reading right now that's been really fascinating. Um, another one that I really enjoyed around the topic we were just talking about um, violence is by uh, Kevin Young at the University of Calgary called "Sport Violence and Society." Um, and and the books I, I think kind of the culmination of a lot of you know many many years of academic research on violence and. He sort of goes through and, and catalogs different types of violence in sport um, and theorizes that, um, and it provides lots of lots of great examples. and It's quite an accessible book. It's it's something I'll definitely keep in mind if I'm I'm teaching in the future. I think I think it's something that undergraduates could could grasp. Um, but there's a lot there for for all levels of of uh, critical thinkers. I think so. Uh, that's obviously quite topical um, with hockey and and. Um, dr young 's done done a huge amount of really insightful research on on violence and sport cultures uh, over the years so that was one uh, that also really stood out for me
3: and then do you have a, a classic favorite whether an academic book or a popular book
6: um i 'd say with hockey there there's sort of i would say one classic and one uh, one classic popular and one classic academic um, say the 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 classic popular hockey book if you're going to read one book on hockey i think it has to be the game by ken dryden ken dryden was uh i'd say not not your typical hockey player uh in addition to to winning multiple stanley cups with the montreal canadians he also took time away from hockey in the 70s to get his law degree and he's practiced law um he's and he's been uh a member of the canadian parliament so uh he's he's obviously um quite a learned man but also very passionate about hockey and he, he played for the montreal canadians who are probably the most uh sort of mythologized and celebrated uh hockey team anyway ken, ken dryden wrote this fantastic book basically about his experiences of the game um the insights of a player and the routine and the camaraderie that you go through and it's it's above and beyond um pretty much anything you'll read at a popular level about hockey he's just he's a he's a very intelligent writer very accessible writer and he's just got fantastic insights and even you know 25 years or so later the the book just still resonates really strongly so for uh, academically i think the major work on hockey is called hockey night in canada sport identities and cultural politics and it's by uh, richard gruneau and david whitson who are both uh university professors in canada and it was written in or published in 1993 and i think it was one of the among the first books to really take a take hockey seriously as a cultural product and to examine its significance in canadian society it can be quite dense uh so i know that a complaint about it is that it's not always accessible i still think that there's a lot in there that is accessible there may be times when theoretically it does get a little dense but it's got fantastic insight and it it looks at Hockey through a variety of prisms, including you know hockey as labor, which was you know influential in how I was just describing the lockout, for example, um, hockey as a cultural institution and how that relates to gender roles and national identity, and, and I think it really it's it's sort of the foundational book for academics who who do look at hockey.
3: Mark Norman's choices of classic hockey books are Ken Dryden's memoir, The Game first published in 1983 and re-released in 2003 by John Wiley & Sons. The book by Richard Grunel and David Whitson is Hockey Night in Canada, Sport, Identities, and Cultural Politics, published in 1993 by Garamond. Mark's picks for this year's best sports books are Stick Handling Through the Margins, First Nations Hockey in Canada by Michael Robidoux published by the University of Toronto Press. And Kevin Young's book is Sport, Violence, and Society published by Rutledge. And you can hear Kevin Young talk about his book on an episode of New Books and Sports from this past June. Go to newbooksandsports.com and hit the tab at the top of the page that says List of Interviews. Here in the U.S., a sports milestone that received much attention this past year was the 40th anniversary of the Title IX legislation. When Congress passed Title IX in June 1972, the aim of the act was to eliminate gender discrimination in schools and educational activities. Since most U.S. schools and universities have sports teams and programs, implementation of the law required equal opportunity for female students in athletics. The result, then, four decades after Title IX's passage, has been the complete transformation of sports in America. The number of girls participating in high school sports has increased by a factor of nine since 1972, and the number of women in university athletics has increased by more than 450%. Despite its successes, Title IX remains controversial and contested. There are still challenges to the law's implementation that must be decided in courts, and there are complaints that increased opportunity for female athletes limits opportunity for men. Nancy Hogshead Makar is a well-known defender of Title IX as an attorney, author, professor, and Director of Advocacy for the Women's Sport Foundation. She is also a former Olympic swimmer, having won three gold medals and a silver at the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics. To begin our interview, I asked Nancy about the move from champion Olympic athlete to a professional career. So I recall reading a piece that you wrote uh, this past year for Deadspin, in which you described how difficult it was for you after your competitive career was over. and, and In your view, is this something that uh, you've had in common with other Olympic athletes?
7: Yeah, I think it's it's um, I think it's actually a very common experience for in two ways. One is that. Um, by the time you get to the Olympic level, you are so competent and you are gifted at something and you are blessed and you you live in that environment and it it um, you know you you have a certain amount of stature and regard and you, you know right so you know you' you're you're leaving that and you're starting another endeavor where you are at rock bottom and not only are you are at rock bottom but you know, there is a true, there is a real hard cost to achieving something really great. And I feel that even now in my professional life, that achievement comes with at a certain price. And for many of us, including myself, it was, what's important enough for me to give that over again? Because it was it, it such a denial of self in many ways. And so what's worth it to give Right, so not only am I completely incompetent in another chosen area, whether it be you know law or medicine or whatever, right, but there's also like what's what what speaks to me sings to me in the same way that is worth it to give that much of myself again.
3: Mm-hmm. So this past June, Nancy, here in the U.S., we marked the, the 40th anniversary of the Title IX legislation, which has allowed for greater female participation in school and university sports. And, and much of your work today as a lawyer and a professor and as a, as a speaker in Title IX, but you've written that when you were younger, this was something that you were reluctant to do. You weren't eager to be a, a public face or a public proponent for, uh, for Title IX. Why was that the case?
7: Well, I just I think being a feminist and being somebody who's fighting for the underserved is a, a tough thing. You just get a lot of pushback and the the disrespect, the scoffing that you can expect if you are fighting for the rights of the disabled or minorities or for women. I remember 20 years ago, one time I gave a talk about Title IX, I guess, I, I don't think I was 30 yet, so I, I think I was the president of the Women's Sports Foundation, yeah, I'm pretty sure I was, and I was giving a talk or whatnot, and the person sitting next to me kept getting notes from people in the audience, and I asked to see what the notes were, and they were um, people who made fun of the idea that women would really have equality in athletics. I, I think, I, I I wasn't sure that I was up for that. That I was up for that kind of that kind of conflict. I mean, now as a 50-year-old woman, I have no problems with it whatsoever, <laughs> and I expect it. And I kind of think it's fun at this age. But my mother did not intend to raise women who were powerful and who were assertive and who were going to make a difference in the world. I was raised to be nice. That was you know to not have any conflict to let the other person always win to you know graciousness was highly praised in my family but you know that yeah that did it it took a while for me to make that decision like i was i was up for it
3: mm-hmm. so you're still a daughter of the midwest then
7: <laughs> absolutely
3: <laughs> <laughs> so so now you are you are a, a, a public advocate for Title IX. I should clarify that in using this this word, uh, we use it in the legal sense of the term. You've been involved in a number of legal cases related to Title IX. And I'll ask you, what are the challenges to today facing Title IX?
7: Well, frankly, it's shocking that we should have any legal challenges at all. The kinds of things that we're seeing right now, there was a case that just came out earlier this year that dealt with whether or not girls... Uh, whether whether or not it violated Title IX, to have girls have all their games during the week and the boys had all their games on the weekends. And, you know, the girls had to, were many of them were in advanced classes and they had to start doing their homework at 10 p.m. So it gave them much more... Um, educational burdens as well as it sent the signal that what they were doing wasn't as important as what the boys were doing. This, the harm in the one area that we're going to sex segregate to treat boys and girls really differently. Now, in my mind, to have that go to a, an appellate court, to have it have to go to the Seventh Circuit is absurd. This should be something that reasonable people should be able to sit down and say, well, of course. In my family, I have a son and two daughters I would never treat the male, men and women or the, the kids differently based on their gender. And I would make sure that they had the same educational opportunities. And And if I couldn't afford a, a certain level of sports or a certain level of treatment for everybody, I would, you know, make the cuts if I needed to be fair for everybody. You know, but instead this this had to go through several hundred thousand dollars in litigation, in order to make this happen. And I, I look forward to the day when that doesn't happen anymore. You know, I mean, the the, the law is 40 years old, as of this year, yay. Um, and during that time, there has been a lot of litigation, again, over things that I, 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 and, and I can't imagine in a racial context that they would have the chutzpah to try to defend these cases. Uh, but I've heard presidents of universities be very pleased with themselves when they won a case on procedural grounds. So let's say the plaintiffs didn't get uh, class action certification properly before they went and the case got dismissed when the kids graduated, right? And they're like very, very happy with themselves. And I have to call them on it. You're telling me that you're happy about the fact that you knew that you were giving the girls a lesser experience, a lesser educational experience than what you were giving the boys, and you're happy about that. And you're here bragging to a group of people about how that you didn't have to pay attorney's fees and you didn't have to give those girls what it was that they wanted so there's only two things that you argue about in litigation there's what's the facts so in most litigation um, say in a car accident was the light red or green you argue about that and then the second thing you argue about is what is the law well after 40 years the law has been so heavily litigated that the case law is really clear equality means equality it's that simple and, and, and in most cases, when it comes to sports cases, the facts are really clear. So there really is not much to argue about anymore. These cases, that we should be seeing major movement. But unfortunately, we're not seeing major movement in, in the, the differential between what boys and girls are offered. In high school, there's still 1.3 million kid difference between what they're offered.
3: Now, the argument that's made and and i know you're familiar with this in fact i just saw a study by an academic psychologist stating this is that uh, boys and men are more interested in sports than girls and women so therefore there should be more opportunities for males because they're more interested in sports so i'll ask how do you how do you respond to that argument
7: sure easily that is that That um, if you had done that exact same study back before Title IX, you would come up with very different results. It would say would say boys are instead of being whatever the percentage was difference that they said they would it would say that they're triple more interested. Interest is a function of opportunity. So if you think about your own life and how you got involved in academics and how you got involved in teaching and some area of the sports or some area that you really loved, it was a function of being introduced to it by somebody else. So we know that right now opportunity is highly correlated with zip code, that um, if, you, if you live in an area, if your school is receiving a lot, if a lot of kids in your uh, school are receiving free or reduced lunch programs, your chance of getting to play sports, whether you're a boy or a girl, is about half. If you live in the South, your chances are about two-thirds less than if you live uh, in the North or the Midwest. If you're, if you live in an urban area, your chance of having a sports experience are far less than if you live in a, a, uh, a town or a rural area. Um, right? So, so where you, what kind of school you go to, rural, urban, suburban, or town, uh, what the free lunch program is, how, how many resources your school has, what area of the country that you live in, dictate how interested you are in sports. Girls in Maine, have three times the sports opportunities that boys in Florida do, okay? It's not – boys in Florida are very interested in playing sports. It's just that the schools don't have those programs. Now, at the Women's Sports Foundation, one thing that we know that we know that we know, when you open up a team and you hire a coach and their job is to go out and find those athletes, that they do, that when you have the facilities, that if you build it, they will come. And so, what you're seeing when, when girls participate in lower levels in these other areas is a reflection rather than a cause. It's a reflection of the lower, the lack of opportunities rather than the reason why they aren't playing, right? And if you did the same study back in 1970, when less than 300,000 girls were playing sports, now you've got 3.1 million girls playing sports. If you did it back then, you'd say, like, you know, why aren't you playing sports? Or if you looked at, you know, the club park levels or whatnot, you know, you'd make the same conclusion. But that doesn't change it, that, that um, until you can show me that some interest in sports for both boys and girls is, is not responsive to what facilities are provided and what opportunities are provided out there. But we know those things go hand in hand, right? If you build it. They will come for both boys and girls. Right now, we are building a lot more for boys than we are for girls.
3: So, Nancy, can you recommend any good sports books for us?
7: David Siren just wrote a really good one. I wrote a review for it. It's his latest book, and it does this masterful job of weaving in politics over what's happening around the world. With um, with sports, you know, I teach an amateur sports law class, and I'm always very interested in these bigger questions of how do sport and society interact with each other? You know, how do they how do they influence e- each other? So when you look at, for example, all the the discussions dealing with the top with the two percent versus the 98 percent of us, um, and you know how that played out in in uh, the NFL, how it played out in the NBA, and you know how it might play out in in hockey. Um, how the the Arab Spring was directly influenced by the sports fans out there. How how they use their organization as fans to ha- make a real political difference. So yeah, I re- really recommend that one.
3: And do you have a classic favorite?
7: What, one that I I still am. Uh, I've been teaching this class for 11 years now, but I still uh, I now it's moved on to be recommended instead of the required reading list. But I really like. Andy Zimbalis's book *Unpaid Professionals*. Um, it does a great job of of talking about all different aspects of intercollegiate athletics and where the the weak points are, if you will. Of you know these lo- these seem to be age-old debates now about paying athletes, or you know is athletics an educational experience, and should we be exempting football and and um, you know the the differences that we pay in wages between men's and women coaches. And he, he does a, as an economist, he does a really good job. I, I enjoy it very much, and my students always do too.
3: Do you have time for one more question? Sure. So there's been a lot of a lot of stories this fall about doping in sports related to Lance Armstrong. International swimming was at the time, as we now know that women swimmers that you competed against from the former communist countries were subjected to extensive, extensive doping. So when you were competing against these swimmers, did you have a sense of what was going on?
7: Yeah, we, we all did. We, we knew, well, I don't think we realized the extent of it, but certainly um, I'll give you an example. One time I went to a, um, it was at the end of the competition, I swam the last event. So I, after swimming down, I was the last person to get out and I was in the showers. And as I was getting dressed, I heard men come into the locker room, and I was scared. And so I kind of shouted out to them, like, hey, I'm, I thought it was a like cleanup crew. And I went, you know, I did get dressed, went around the corner, and it was East German swimmers. And to me, I just knew these were men that had come into the swim area. So we all knew that that's not cultural, mm-hmm. <laughs> that those low voices that you intuitively, you hear, you think, ah, oh, it's a women's life. They shouldn't be in here. Uh, we, we we all knew it. but. You know, when I, when I look back, sort the question has become, um, should, they, should Shirley Babishoff get the gold medal and should um, Cornelia Ender give up her gold medals? And here's why I think that, um, that we should leave the results alone. And that is that those women, I don't think, had, number one, any choice over the matter. It was not the same as Lance Armstrong, who was the architect not just for himself, but for many others. These were kids. Who were largely under the age of consent, even who many times didn't know what they were taking, didn't have any option as what they were taking. Um, the their system burned out a lot of swimmers who whose bodies couldn't take the physical pounding that came with the kind of training that they were getting. And uh, you, many of them have suffered tremendously since then uh, with, with de- deformities in their children, with not being able to get pregnant, with lifelong health consequences, with different morphology in their facial structure and their, and their structural system that will never be reversed for the rest of their lives. And so I think it's unfair to sort of put Lance Armstrong and the East German women in the same
3: category. Nancy Hogshead-Makar's book recommendations are Game Over, How Politics Has Turned the Sports World Upside Down, written by Dave Zirin and published this year by The New Press. And the book by Andrew Zimbalist is titled Unpaid Professionals, Commercialism and Conflict in Big-Time College Sports, published in 2001 by Princeton University Press. As you heard Nancy say, one region of the world where the connection of sport and politics has been most evident is the Middle East. To get an overview of the main issues in sports in that region from the past year, I spoke with veteran journalist James Dorsey, who authors the blog, The Turbulent World of Middle East Soccer. James's site is widely acclaimed as the source for information and analysis on politics, soccer, and sports in general in the Middle East and North Africa. I reached James at his home in Singapore, where he is the senior fellow at the School of International Studies at Nanyang Technological University. I began our talk by asking him about a notable and controversial event in Middle Eastern sports from this past year, the decision of the Saudi Arabian Olympic Committee to send two female athletes to the London Games, the first time that women had ever represented the country at an Olympic event.
8: Let, let's put this in a larger context. Saudi Arabia, and I've lived in Saudi Arabia, and I've been traveling to Saudi Arabia since the 1970s, is the most Puritan interpretation of Islam that exists. And therefore, the uh, the restrictions that exist for women are the The most, the strictest there. Um, Fact of the matter is, yes, this was opportunistic. Um, Saudi Arabia did not have a lot of choice. It was, it risked being excluded by the IOC from uh, the Olympic Games, as did, by the way, Qatar and um, Brunei, the two other nations who had never before sent uh, female athletes to to the Olympics. Uh, they risked being excluded from the games if they complied. And the way that they complied was that they uh, chose two athletes who were Saudis living outside of Saudi Arabia. Now, there's one caveat, and that is that there is a female Saudi equestrian who has taken part in international tourna- Olympic tournaments in the past, but she did so really on her own steam without official support. You also have to keep in mind that nothing has changed within the kingdom with regard to the infrastructure, if you wish, for female athletes. With other words, girls' public girls' schools do not have physical education for girls. Uh, soccer clubs for women are not something that are officially sanctioned. They do exist, but they exist in a in an environment that ranges from uh, semi-legitimate to clandestine. Uh, there is a Spanish consultant who has been hired by the uh, Saudi authorities to um, to develop a, a, a national sports plan, something that Saudi Arabia did not have until now and does not have until now. That plan does not include uh, provisions for women. Now, the other thing I think one, one has to re- recognize is that all of these strictures, whether in Saudi Arabia or in other Muslim countries, with regard to women, are discussed in the, um, in the context of Islam and, 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 and um, uh, strictures that it puts on women, or supposedly puts on women. fact of the matter is that in reality, this has very little to do with religion. It may very well be religiously justified, but if you look at the um, Palestinian women's national soccer team, that team has 18 members. 14 of those members are Christians, and four are Muslims. If you ask the Christians about the kind of social difficulty they've had to overcome, whether that was within the family, whether that was in larger, uh, the, lar- la- the society at large, it's the same story you would hear from Muslim girls. With other words, you're dealing with a cultural attitude that is not necessarily defined by religion. It just happens to, uh, if you wish, to occur at this point, primarily in Muslim majority countries.
3: Uh, so, a major event that drew international attention uh, this past year to Middle East soccer was the incident at Port Said Stadium in Egypt last February, which led to the deaths of 74 people and more than 1,000 injured. And I, I know that in the immediate aftermath of the event, when it was getting a lot of attention in sports media around the world, there was much uncertainty and confusion about what had happened. So so now that we're 10 months after the event, is there a clear understanding of, of just what happened and what led to this mass attack at the stadium?
8: I, I think there's a consensus and there's, there's a consensus and there's a lot of uh, confusion. Um, I think there's very little doubt in people's minds that um, what happened was not coincidence, that it was an attempt, albeit an attempt that got out of hand, to uh, teach the ultras a lesson and to cut them down to size keep in mind that the ultra the various ultras groups in Egypt constitute one of the largest civic groups in the country after the ruling Muslim Brotherhood and they were played a key role in the overthrow in first resistance against the Mubarak regime while Mubarak was still in office and in the overthrow of Mubarak in February of last year as well as in resistance to the military rulers who took over after the fall of Mubarak. Uh, I don't think that it was anybody's intention for 74 people to be killed, but I do think that um, violence was intended and that as a result what happened in Port Said was not a coincidence.
3: And of course, so James, you've been following how this event has played out in Egypt over the following months, not only in football, but also in politics. And And one basic question is... Is there going to be soccer this year in the Egyptian Premier League?
8: I think it's still open to question. Soccer has been suspended in Egypt since the Port Said event in February. It was uh, twice supposed to be uh, reinstituted this fall, and twice was postponed uh, primarily because of the opposition of the ultras to uh, as long as justice has not been served for the death of their 74 brethren, as well as a series of other demands which go to the, in many ways to the core of uh, what the overthrow of Mubarak was about, which include reform of the police and security forces, which are the most hated institution in Egypt because uh, they're thoroughly corrupt and they were the um, repressive arm of the regime an anti-corruption campaign in which the Ultras have started to be successful, and a removal of Mubarak-era appointees in the management of soccer. Uh, There's now the plan to restart the um, the, uh, the season on the 17th of December. The Ultras have vowed that they will disrupt that, and so it remains to be seen whether we will see soccer this year or not.
3: So, James, have you read any good sports books this year?
8: With regard to the Middle East and North Africa, certainly in English, there is very, very little. Um, if you look at the focus of journalism, as well as academia, on um, Middle East and North African soccer, or on soccer as such, it covers most of the world, and there's one blind spot. And that's the Middle East and North Africa. One exception to that is an, is an academic book, and it's written fairly much in academic language, but nonetheless called Sports Politics and the Arab World, written by an um, Algerian academic at Loughborough University in England, which is called uh, whose name is Mahfoud Amara. Um, there are bits and pieces in French, and there's obviously a fair amount of stuff in Arabic.
3: So other than the, other than the Middle East, do you have a, a favorite book on, on football that you recommend?
8: It's probably David Goldblatt's The Ball is Round, which is um, a, a very comprehensive, very readable history of, um, of soccer. There's one book uh, on the Middle East that was published a couple of years ago by a journalist called uh, James Montague. Very much more from a sports rather than a political or a social uh, perspective. But it is one of the very few works, and as and, and such, a valuable work on, on the region. I mean, I think those are the ones that, I, that, that come to mind most immediately.
3: And you're working on, on a book that will fill this gap in, in the literature on soccer in the Middle East?
8: I'm working on a book. It will be for others to judge whether it fills the gap or not. <laughs> James Dorsey's suggestions
3: for further reading are Sport, Politics, and Society – in the Arab world. Written by Mahfoud Amara and published in 2012 by Paul Grave Macmillan. The book by soccer journalist James Montague is titled When Friday Comes Football in the War Zone published by Mainstream in 2008. And of course the Bible of world soccer is David Goldblatt's The Ball is Round A Global History of Football published in 2007. Certainly, questions about the intersections between sport and religion are not limited to the Islamic world. Since the advent of modern sports in the 19th century, Christian ministers and missionaries have seen athletics as a means to advance the faith and promote pious living. In contemporary sports, several athletes have become known as much for their religiosity as for their play on the field. One can think of Tim Tebow and Jeremy Lin in the US, or Israel Folau in Australia, or Kaká in World Soccer. But when it comes to writing about the religious beliefs of athletes, sports journalists generally admit their lack of knowledge. Typically, an article about an athlete's religiosity opens with the line, Well, I don't know much about religion. And then the writer proceeds to put down several hundred words about religion. So in order to get a more informed view, we'll hear from someone who actually does know about religion. Quite a bit, in fact. Graham Tomlin is the principal of St. Paul's Theological Center and dean of St. Melita's College in London. He has written several books on theology, and he hosts the podcast GodPod. Graham also has a deep interest in sport as both a theologian and a fan. So one question that I've asked a number of guests on this podcast, historians, sociologists, philosophers, why are we drawn to watch sports? So so I'll ask you for a theological perspective. What is it that Mm. compels us to watch sports or to, to attach ourselves to a particular team?
2: Well, I think, that, I think the two things are slightly different. I mean, I think, why do we watch sport and why does sport play such a big part in our lives? Well, it seems to me that um, sport, sport, I think, reminds us that we ultimately don't matter in the biggest sense of that word. Now, what I mean by that, that, that I don't mean by that that we're not important or that we um, we're not loved by God, but it seems that ultimately we are, as human beings, we are contingent, not necessary. In other words, that we don't, we didn't have to exist. God chose to create us just because he wanted to. He didn't have to create us. He just chose to do so out of pure joy, out of, just out of his pure will. Um, and because in a sense ultimately it's meaningless, ultimately because it doesn't really matter, reminds us that we also don't matter in that kind of wider sense of the world. It reminds us that we're not, we shouldn't take ourselves too seriously. And so, if you like, sport is a kind of reminder to us. It seems to me of the of the total joy of life, the fact that it's not ultimately about earnestness and seriousness and and necessity, and actually life is about um, the enjoyment of something good that God has given, just because God chose to give it to us. So I think that's why we why sport is so significant for us, because it it reminds us, it takes us out of the world of work which seems to be all full of necessity and deadlines and all of those kind of things. Actually it it reconnects us to a to a world of um the joyfulness of physical activity, the the um, the enjoyment of other people's achievements and so on. I think I mean why why do we attach ourselves to a team? I think that's something slightly different. I think I think that's to do with um identity, community, our our sense of a need to belong to something. You know, I think that we are created such that we we band together with other people and I think you know when we support a team you know we're expressing that kind of communal nature of who we are as human beings that we're not uh, we're not sufficient on our own we need a connection with with some um, with others and therefore when I you know when I support my team I go along and I, I'm part of a crowd I'm part of something much bigger than myself and it's, uh, it it feeds a greater sense of uh, of my own identity my own sense of belonging to a community and uh that is what I think you know sports teams are about.
3: Can I follow up on that and to ask, do you think are there moments when, in watching sports we have we have moments of transcendence? I remember reading an essay uh before the before the start of the Olympics this past summer where uh, and it was a British writer who was saying, you know aside for all of the the foul ups, the over budgeting, uh the security regimen throughout London. I look forward to a Bob Beeman moment—that type yeah. of of epic yeah. accomplishment that lifts us in some. And I don't—I don't think he used the word transcendence, but that's what came yeah. to mind. Is that sure. uh, yeah. we're drawn out of the triviality of our existence?
2: Yeah, I think that I think that's right. I mean, there are moments. I mean, I can remember watching a game a couple of years ago between Manchester United and Manchester City. Manchester United are my sort of second team. When you support a team like Bristol City, you never win anything. You need to support a team that sometimes win things to kind of cheer you up. And Man United are my second team. And there was a moment in this particular game when um, Cross came over. And I don't know if you saw the goal, but Wayne Rooney uh, did this just quite incredible bicycle kick. Yes. The ball was behind him in the air. He turned. The ball was five foot off the ground. You know, he did this amazing bicycle kick straight over Joe Hart, the goalkeeper's head into the far corner. It was the most sublime goal. And I can remember watching it. I remember standing up and thinking, that was just incredible. It was a moment when you couldn't say anything. You couldn't um, describe it. You just had to sort of just sit there and wonder at it. And also if the crowd couldn't quite react, there was a long moment of silence. You know, normally when a goal is scored, there's an eruption of, of joy. And there was, but there's also kind of moment of, goodness me, did we just see that? That was just incredible. And when, when it says you were taken out of your normal activity, you saw something that was just quite astounding and that was both for joy because you know team had scored, but our team had scored in such a way that just took you out of the ordinary. So I think there are, I think there definitely are moments of transcendence that sports can do which do in a sense give you echoes of um, echoes of something beyond this world that take you beyond the ordinary that give you reminders that there's something more than just the ordinary and a lot of football matches are pretty ordinary it's just passing the ball around and desperately trying to get to the other end but every now and again something happens that just takes you completely beyond that and uh, in a way that that which kind of happens with god too it seems to me that we're going you know, going on in our ordinary sort of humdrum life and suddenly something reminds us that we're part of something much much bigger that there is a whole dimension of life out there that we're not often not aware of
3: does god care about which team wins a football game
2: i wish he did <laughs> um there are serious times, when I wish he did. And, I, and you know, I, like every other football fan, Of, <laughs> I find myself praying in in games along the lines of, well, let God, I, I know you don't really support Bristol City, but it, it would be really nice if you could just do us a favour every now and again. <laughs> he doesn't answer my prayers very often. So I think I think the short answer is no, I'm not sure he does care that much. He wins the game. But I think he also knows that it matters to us. And um because he cares for us, then in that sense, it 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 sort of matters to him, but in a sense, I, I think it's probably quite important for us to recognise that he doesn't really, it doesn't really matter to God whether Bristol City win or lose, because in some ways that that keeps, that keeps the sense of perspective in supporting a team. Because in one sense, I think when I support a team, mean you know, I support Bristol City or Manchester United, and I desperately want them to win. And um, you know, when you're in the game, you're watching it. Um, I mean, I can remember a couple of years ago, Bristol City got to the playoff final, uh, we we're playing Hull City for a place in the Premier League. Uh, I just desperately wanted us to win. We went 1-0 down, and I spent the second half with a knot in my stomach just desperately trying to suck this ball into the net, and it didn't happen. And there was a sense of, you know, just desolation at the end. Our big chance had gone. I'd invested everything in, in that game. And yet there was an also a part of me that, that kind of had to stand back from that and say, actually, ultimately, you know, this really doesn't matter. And that, that seems to me that the kind of the thing that you need to get, the kind of balance within supporting a football team, that on the one hand it matters... Well, it matters everything to you because you support the team, but in the ultimate sense, it doesn't matter. And that that balance seems to be the secret of supporting a team, because if you don't get that balance right, in other words, if you don't invest anything in the team, if it doesn't really matter to you, well, why support it? That's the whole point of supporting a team, that it, you, you get... But it seems to be when sports following goes wrong is where you lose the other part of the perspective, which is to say actually in the ultimate sense it doesn't matter because that's when you start getting, you know, violence in football, that's what's when you start getting you know, people getting depressed or even you know, committing suicide over football games, because they've lost that sense that in the ultimate sense it doesn't matter. In some ways, you know, sport is a kind of it's a world within a world, a world which which does matter, where we're you know, if you like able to, to kind of um uh, to exercise our various emotions we're able to kind of empathize with the team we're it's a very cathartic thing we're in this little moment of time we, we we you know we invest everything in the in the in the um, in this team and we're able to do so if you like safely because actually we know ultimately in the biggest sense of the word it doesn't matter does that make sense
3: yeah 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 so Graham I'll ask have you read any good sports books this year yeah
2: I've been reading a couple of things I mean my, my um I mean, my sports reading tends to be around so, two areas really. One is um, games of uh, books on football, which, as you might imagine, um, I also read quite a lot of books on um, books on mountaineering as well. I have, uh, I mean, I do a little bit of climbing and um, love being in the mountains and um, uh, read books about that as well. So, I mean, I, I've enjoyed uh, a couple of books this last year. I read a, a book a little while ago by a guy called Dave Roberts called uh, called Thirty Two Programs. It's a it's a book about um, this football fan who um, it's basically his life story. And uh, it's, it's built around his passion for collecting football programmes. And it talks about 32. You know, he, he just collects. He goes to games all the time. And collects programmes. It's about 32 programmes of games that were significant in his life. And it's a very, very good device of telling the story of a of a person's life through the lens of his supporting of football. And um, it's actually quite a sad, poignant story in a way. He actually gets uh, you know, very ill towards the end of his life, and then kind of rediscovers um, you know his own sort of purpose, and football plays a, a kind of key part in that, so I, I enjoyed that book, I enjoyed um, a very good book by a guy called Wade Davis called Into the Silence, which was a book about the um, the, the attempts on Everest in the 1920s, which culminated in the, the deaths of um, Mallory and Irvin, that great story of these uh, mountaineers who tried to, to uh, conquer Everest and, and no one quite knows whether they got to the top or not because they disappeared somewhere near the top in, I think it was 1928 but um, so again, that was a you know, hugely sort of poignant story that was um, that kind had of blended in you know, themes of faith and aspiration and sort of heroism and physical effort and so on so I mean, I mean these are just two, two books I've really enjoyed in the last um, you know, the last twelve months or so yeah
3: and do you have a, a classic favorite
2: well, I think it has to be um, Nick Hornby's book *Fever Pitch*, which um, uh, I guess many people would have read. I mean, it's it's a very interesting book because it, um, of course, it's, uh, you know, it's it's it spawned a whole genre of of football writing uh, here in the UK. And uh, this was a kind of middle class um, lad brought up. You know, his family broke up. Um, he supported Arsenal as a, as a, as a child grew up in it. And in fact, he, Nick Ornby is actually the same age as me. And uh, so when I read it for the very first time, I found someone describing exactly my, my upbringing. Um, he, he described exactly what it was like to go to football matches in the 1970s, 1980s, which was very different from what it is now. You know, the grounds were much less, less plush. They were much less fancy. They were, you know, the toilets were smelling, the, the ground was grossy. It was pretty awful. Um, but you know, he, he absolutely captured what it was like to support a football team in the 1970s, and again, it's something of his own life story as well, and the sheer sort of obsessiveness that football can can, um, can get. And, and and I think the other, the other thing that he put his finger on that I think not many sports books do is the fact that that in sense, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the result really doesn't matter that much. Um, and obviously, you want your team to win. But the basic point is, you're going to carry on supporting your team, whatever they do, whether yeah. they're rubbish or whether they're they're good. And that uh, that kind of kind of insight that yes, your your club has you. In some ways, you don't have any independence of them. <laughs> um, and if you support a team, you don't just give up supporting them because they just go through a bad stage or they get relegated or, or whatever. It's just something. Once you choose your club, you choose it for life. So, you know, choose it carefully. My my son, Sam, also supports Bristol City, and he's often said to me on the way home from a 1-0 a away defeat at Peterborough or something like that, and he often says, Dad, why, did you, why on earth did you ever choose Bristol City as your team? Why am I stuck with this? Why didn't you choose a team that won stuff from time to time? And we kind of moan uh, you know, on the way home. But we kind of know, both of us, we know in this unspoken way, that's just our, That's just it for life. Um, we have no choice over this. Um, but that's actually the whole point of doing doing the whole thing anyway. So you know, the result doesn't matter. It's actually loyalty. And that's what I think supporting a team does for you. It's taught me more about loyalty and about um, faithfulness than more or less anything else I've ever done.
3: My son has asked me the the same question. I'm a, I'm a supporter of a team that uh that is generally mediocre, or occasionally will make a reach for the championship and then fail yep. in, in heartbreaking fashion. So, and yep. I was going to ask related to that. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Graham. I'm, I'm really having difficulty getting my my brain around this idea that you support Bristol City and then you hedge your bets by supporting Manchester United. I just, <laughs> I, have a, I have a hard time with this. But I'll pose this to you as a as a question, since you had firsthand experience with both groups of fans. As as a as a theologian and a minister, is it is it not true that the fans of losing teams like Bristol City are more moral and upright people than the supporters of, of Manchester United or the New York Yankees? Or yeah, well, it depends. It depends. I mean, it, it, the thing is with Bristol City, only, Bristol
2: City only has one kind of fan. In other words, the the loyal fans who will carry on supporting the team whatever happens and and it's we're kinda stuck with them. Manchester United's a bit different. Manchester United has it has its hardcore fans and uh, when I go to United games, they tend to be the ones who are away games, they tend to be the people who are kinda hardcore, they'll carry on supporting the team. They're exactly the same as the Bristol City fans. And you sense that even if Man United did become rubbish and got relegated, they'd carry on supporting them anyway. But the problem is with successful teams is they also generate a whole lot of fans who just support them because they're the latest thing to, to, to admire and just kids sort of support them for a few years and when they're not so good they switch over to another team who are doing a little bit better. And those, uh, you know, that, that fan that the, um, the, the diehard fan looks down on with a certain degree of <laughs> um, disdain, I think. Um, so I don't think it's the case necessarily that fans of. Successful teams are less moral than the ones of, of losing teams. Uh, it's just that they have a wider penumbra of, um, of sort of fair weather fans who, you
3: know, who really are, are not there for the long haul. Graham Tomlin's suggestions for this year's book list are Dave Roberts' memoir, 32 Programs, published by Bantam Press in 2011, Wade Davis's book, on George Mallory's ill-fated climb of Mount Everest is titled Into the Silence The Great War, Mallory, and the Conquest of Everest published by Vintage in 2012. And Graham's choice for a classic football book is indeed a classic. Nick Hornby's Fever Pitch which was re-released this past year by Penguin Classics. The final guest of this year's book list episode is something of a selfish choice. I have to finish my Christmas shopping, and as you might expect, I like to give books. So to get some suggestions on books that I might find for the young readers in my house, I turn to an expert on children's literature. Lisa Von Drasek is curator of the Children's Literature Research Collection at the University of Minnesota and she is the author of many reviews of books for children. I can assure you that Lisa is well-read in sports books for young readers and the recommendations she gives here represent only the cream of a very large crop. To begin, I asked Lisa, while she knows sports books, is she a sports fan?
9: I am not really a sports fan. I'm more of a communal sports fan. If the game is on and everybody's watching the game, I join the pack. But I don't follow sports as a fan or someone who's looking at teams. I, I, I don't really even have a team. If you were going to say, where did you grow up? We had the Phillies and the Flyers, but I wasn't a person whose family was interested in sports. But I became interested in sports reading the books that the kids that I was teaching we're reading. And when you think about that, when you think about children and books and the struggles some parents have, some teachers have getting kids to read with that capital, just 10 pages, read 10 pages. But if you ask the kid what he wants to read or what she wants to read about, and they say sports books, often teachers and librarians are at a loss. Because they're not reading the literature, and I just started asking the kids to hand me books that they loved. And that's how I started reading Dan Gutman. His books are not really series books, but he writes passionately about the sport so that you feel that you are there. And that way I can participate, and that's when I know how to choose books and how to read books to give to kids.
3: So how long has... has sport been a subject in children's literature?
9: I would say since there were sports. You can look back to Tunis, you can look at Tom Brown's school days. Um, There has been football, there has been baseball, and you know that the literature of baseball is a canon for adults to read. We have the same thing with children, that there has been... Matt Christopher has been writing. He's no longer with us. But these writers have been writing about these sports because it reflects the world these kids are living in.
3: So you had mentioned earlier there's this uh, constant struggle by parents and teachers and librarians Mm -hmm. to find things that that will get children to read. And I know that it's specifically to get boys to read. This is... Mm -hmm. uh, uh, A problem in education. And so is there research to show that that boys are drawn to reading books about sports?
9: Oh, absolutely. Um, And when we say these reluctant readers, that phrase is kind of outdated, but it's kids who can read, but choose not to because they are drawn by video games or actually physically doing sports, why should they sit in a room with a book and when assignments required reading is not as interesting to them, they don't want to read Little House on the Prairie, they don't want to read character driven with a lot of description, they want excitement, they want page turners and what gives you that more than sports? The, the inherent drama to any sport, and so with that structure, you can have literary fiction. Someone like John Coy—I don't know if you know this series—it's the Four by Four, Top of the Order. Um, he is a writer. His first book that I knew of was one called Strong to the Hoop about a pickup game, and it was a picture book, and it was so dramatic that you could you could have made it into a play. And so, as he's been writing more and more, he's really pinpointed what the 10-year-old boy, the 9-year-old boy, or person interested in books, would want to pick up and keep reading. And I think, you, just like any literature, you want to have a point of view, you want to have a sense of place, but you also want to have high interest. And just like I couldn't tell my husband what he should be reading, it. I believe in selection, self-selection by children, and I believe that teachers and librarians have a responsibility to read widely, even outside their own comfort zone.
3: So you mentioned *Little House on the Prairie*, which is typically thought of of a book or series of books that Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that girls are attracted to. Right? Are you finding that in books um, marketed to girls? Are, are sports themes appearing given that now you have greater participation by young girls in sports? Are, are, is sports a subject I that's... I think
9: there's more and more books about girls in sports um, and as it just a daily part of their lives. Uh, there's a book called Dairy Queen by Catherine Gilbert Murdoch, which is a young adult book, and it's the first time I've read a book that was football-oriented that a girl excels at that sport. So that was a topic that I wasn't familiar with, and it was also a riveting read and a character study of a community, a dairy farmer community. So I thought that was something. Also, I think that it's gender-neutral. Like Mike Lupica, I'd say, would be the number—and Dan Gutman— are the two writers that are gender-neutral, that both boys and girls are dying to read the next one.
3: So let's get to your recommendations, Lisa. I know you have a, have a stack of books there that uh, you'd like to talk about. And let's talk about first, I know there have been some uh, very good recent books that deal with the history of the Negro League. So could you start with those?
9: Oh, I would love to. The book that I'm stunned by is one called Stars in the Shadows by Charles R. Smith, Jr., and illustrations by Frank Morrison. And the subtitle is The Negro League All-Star Game of 1934. And if you're not familiar with Charles Smith, he is a poet, and he's written um, books about other sports like basketball. But this one is a stunner for a few reasons. One is the chapters are fabulously short, so that if you have a kid who looks at a big, fat book and goes, Oh, I'm not going to read that, what you have here is a lushly illustrated book in black and white pencil and charcoal sketches. And those are by Frank Morrison. And as you just pick up the book, you start with the announcer's voice. Welcome to Chicago. Welcome all. It's a beautiful day to play baseball. So you have that sense of place. You have the sense of time. And as we, as the reader, and it's a terrific read aloud, are sitting there listening to the voice of the announcer, we begin the game with Lift Every Voice and Sing, the national anthem for af- African Americans. So you have that. And then he introduces the players, You have Slim Jones and Judd Wilson and Oscar Charleston, and as we go through this all-star game, you have that excitement of the best players in the league playing with each other. So I can't think of a more fabulous introduction to the Negro League and that history, but also with the excitement of this one game as the structure.
3: And then there was another book that followed that correctly, That uh, another well, illustrated um, book?
9: Yeah, when I was reading this one, I couldn't help but think and pull off my shelf, We Are the Ship, the Story of the Negro League Baseball. That book is an information book, a nonfiction book with words and paintings by Kadir Nelson. It has won many, many awards. And the structure of it is of an oversized picture book. So you have these incredible portraits of the players, the umpires, Inc- and the history. So, if you have anyone who's interested in baseball or the history of baseball, this would be the perfect gift book. And put them together; it's a perfect book for any, I'd say, anyone ten and up, who's looking with interest to baseball and the history of baseball.
3: Well, let's turn to more, uh, moving from illustrated books. Let's turn to more literary books, and, and what would be your your selections of whether off- authors or specific titles.
9: Well, for specific titles, if you're looking for a great read and you've missed children's literature um, in this genre, um, you couldn't do better to start with Mike Lupica. The first book that he wrote that caught the attention of teachers and librarians was Travel Team, but he's had many since then, and um, I'm sure people who follow Sports know Mike Lupica as an adult who writes about adults and sports, but he has certainly captured what it is like for kids who are excelling in their sport and the social, emotional, and economic diversity of the children and the young adults who are playing. So the new one for people who have a kid in their family who maybe they they don't know very well but they know they like sports I would go with True Legend, which is a basketball story, and that's the newest one. So that's the one that um, would make the best gift, especially to a kid who you might know not know that well. I also um, I'm loving these Tony Hawk books. Um, you know Tony Hawk, the skateboarder. He has written a series of books um, that are like popcorn to read the tony hawks 900 revolution and you were saying about gender boys and girls the main characters of each of these series books um some are boys some are girls some are african-americans and it covers a lot of different sports so it's not just skateboarding but it is also snowboarding so those those books i think If you have a kid who's not really that interested in reading, and that's boys or girls, that's a great um, tempting treat for them for the holiday season. You talked a little bit about history. When I would think about history, when I think about where did this all start really, I think Robert Lipsight is one of my heroes in terms of really getting underneath Juicy story, great language, fast-paced action. He's someone who really gets what it, the drama of sport. And if you have a kid who likes that kind of book, Chris Crutcher is someone who writes.
3: I'll add there, we uh, uh, had Robert Lipsight as, as a guest on the podcast uh, back at the beginning of this year. And one thing that he said is that uh, his, his books for young readers... Uh, are the are the works that he takes most pride in? That he, uh, yeah, that he has the greatest, pre- you know, compared to all the other books he's written for adults, his his columns for the New York Times for decades, and so uh, you had mentioned Tony Hawk, and I know that there are other. Uh, sports stars, oh, right. athletes who've gotten into into writing books. Do you recommend any of those books written oh, by I former athletes? Oh, I certainly
9: do. You know, I don't want to forget picture books because that's where it all starts. That's where the reading interest starts. Christy Yamaguchi has a wonderful character and her new book is Dream Big Little Pig. And, of course, Little Pig is a skater and she glides and she slides and she swirls and she twirls and it's just a delight to read aloud and share with young children. Tiki um, and Rondi Barber have a series of books. They started with picture books, beautifully illustrated picture books, and now have moved up into chapter books that can be read for aloud to 8-year-olds or 7-year-olds and can be read on their own by 9- nine- and 10-year-olds. So, if you're interested in football, there are those. And Cal Ripken has a new series. Um, the first one that I read is Super Size Slugger. And the second one that I have on my pile that I haven't read yet is Hothead. And he pretty much captured what it's like to be on that diamond.
3: So to finish up, Lisa, what would be your advice as a uh, as a librarian, as an and as an educator about uh, uh, you know I'm a parent, and and I know that there are other parents uh, listening to this in terms of recommending recommending books about sports for their kids.
9: Number one, provide these books. Statistics have shown that kids who are surrounded by books become readers, and that children who are surrounded by language any kind of metric on any kind of test. So if you've got a kid that's out there, my next door neighbor, who's out there every single day with that hockey stick with the ball against the garage door, you have books. There are books available for him. And it is to provide those, to go to your librarian and ask for recommendations, to look online, to to see what these what are people reading? right now. Oh, I'm sorry. I don't want to miss mentioning Jake Maddox. Jake Maddox is a writer who writes about sports, high-interest books for kids who perhaps choose not to read or their teacher is making that frowny face, not reading on grade level, not finding the just right book. And if you have a kid who's not reading um, or chooses not to read, and you want them to start reading books like popcorn, any book, any book by Jake Maddox. He runs the spectrum of every sport, from soccer to hockey to rodeo. So there is a book for every kid, I am convinced.
3: Among the specific books Lisa recommended are, John Coy, Strong to the Hoop, published by Lee and Lowe Books in 1999. The book by Charles R. Smith, Jr. is titled Stars in the Shadows, the Negro League All-Star Game of 1934, published by Athenaeum Books in 2012. And Kadir Nelson's illustrated book is We Are the Ship, the Story of Negro League Baseball, published by Hyperion in 2008. And you can look for the many books published by the other authors that Lisa discussed. Dan Gutman, Mike Lupica, Tony Hawk, and Robert Lipsight. My sincere thanks to Lisa and to all my guests for taking the time to offer their reading suggestions and their comments on this past year in sports. If you enjoyed this special episode, please check out the author interviews in our archive. There are more than 50 episodes of new books in sports available on our website and on iTunes and please be sure to visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash newbooksandsports. Scroll down the wall, and you'll find dozens of thoughtful articles from sports writers and bloggers covering sports around the world this past year. New Books and Sports is going on holiday, but we'll be back in January 2013 with a new slate of podcast interviews with the authors of books on horse racing basketball, Italian sports, and sports television. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the holidays.